1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 21. We've been in 1 Timothy for about three or four months. I think it's about 14 or so teachings, 15 teachings, something like that. This is our last time in 1 Timothy together. So let's read it together. Look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider this passage of Scripture together. We believe, God, that this is your word breathed out by you. So, God, I pray that you would teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us. That you would make us men and women fully equipped for every good work. God, use your word, please. Use your word to stir our hearts, to show us Christ. Use your word, God, to move us to obedience. God, I pray that you would make us doers of your word and not hearers only. God, help us not to deceive ourselves, but make us doers of your word and not hearers only. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to dive right in. We're going to dive right into this passage together. The first thing I want you to see here is Timothy's title. The 
title that's given to Timothy. It says right there in verse 11, you see it? But as for you, O man of God, that's what he calls Timothy, O man of God. This is a title that was often give, given throughout the Bible to the prophets of old. These prophets were called, O man of God. So why is it given to Timothy here? Well, Timothy is standing before the people of God on behalf of God, heralding the word of God like a prophet of old. O man of God. This is a title that every Christian should take upon themselves. O man of God. O woman of God. I know you believe in the priesthood of all believers. Do you believe in the prophethood of all believers? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 uses this phrase and pushes it out to everyone who's in Christ that would be equipped for every good work. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Listen to this. So that the man of God, same phrase, so that the man of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work that Christians should take this title upon themselves. O man of God, O woman of God. Now consider the contrast. He is the man of God. He's not the man of the world. What are you marked by, the world? Or are you a man of God? He's a heavenly man, not an earthly man, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. He's not merely human. He's man of God. Now I'm getting that phrase, merely human, and I want to read this. I love this verse. You don't have to flip there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just listen quickly. He says, 3 verse 1, But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, men and women of God, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you, you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And listen to this. And you're behaving only in a human way. You ever said that to anybody? Man, you're acting so human right now. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Timothy's not merely human. He's a man of God. It should be an encouragement for us to watch out for those common mantras that you hear sometimes like, you know, there's no difference between Christians and the world except forgiveness. And I understand what people are getting at at times. But listen, God does a mighty work in Christians and He changes them and they're not merely human. They're men and women of God. Maybe some of you have heard the hymn. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. And Timothy is one of these men of God. Now, what we see in this passage are four um, attributes of the man of God or, or four expectations. It's probably a better way to say it. Four expectations for the man of God. Number one, there are things that the man of God must flee. There are things that the man of God must flee. You see it in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, he says. Flee these things. 
Now, what is Timothy being charged to flee? If you go read the right before this, the, the immediately preceding verses, in verse 5, there's this unhealthy obsession with gain. Flee that, Timothy. Verse 9 and 10, he calls it a desire to be rich or the love of money. Flee it, Timothy. Materialism, covetousness, storing up for yourselves things on this earth. Timothy, flee these things. Flee these things is what he's called to do here. Now, why? Why should Timothy flee these things? Because they're dumb and deadly. They're dumb and deadly. Now I get dumb and deadly from verse 9. Verse 9 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, and into many senseless, that's dumb, and harmful, that's deadly, desires. Flee these things because it's dumb and it's deadly. You, you, you can read right here, it says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing with these, we should be, excuse me, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So isn't it dumb to store up things on this earth when you, you didn't bring anything in and you can't take anything out? Flee these things. And it's dangerous. It's harmful. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, that's dangerous, and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's spiritual suicide. The love of money, Timothy, flee it. It's spiritual suicide. Many have gone to hell and rejected Christ, clinging to love for things and stuff and materialism. So he's called here to flee these things. You can't be a man of God and a man of gain at the same time. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says something just like that. He says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God. Timothy, you can't serve God and money. Flee these things, he says here. Flee these things. But how? How do you do it? And there's different ways to think about fleeing covetousness and fleeing the love of money. I want to just highlight... Uh, one little aspect, as we spent time on this last week, I want you to think about it like this. There's another thing you're told to flee in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, flee sexual immorality. How do you do that? How do you flee lust? You don't just sit around and say, stop lusting, stop lusting, stop lusting. You don't do that. But you set your mind on greater things, more beautiful things, more amazing things. You set your mind on Christ. So it's not just stop thinking about that. It's think on Christ. Think on Jesus. Look at who He is and kill lust and flee it. And so in a similar way, how do you flee the love of money? You don't just sit around saying, don't love money, don't love money, don't love money. You don't sit around telling yourself that, but rather what do you do? You give generously. Chapter 6, verse 18, we'll get more time to it in just a minute. But verse 18 says, be generous Willing to share. It tells the rich in this present age to be willing to give, ready to share. So how do you flee from these things? You give generously. Generosity and love for money cannot coexist. Generosity and love for money cannot coexist. Our brother Blake talked last week. 
And I love this quote. He said, the beginning of discontentment or covetousness, the beginning of it is a hesitancy to give. If you are not generous, you probably love money. If you are hesitating to give, you might be loving money. So brothers and sisters in Christ, first charge for the man of God. Flee these things. Woman of God, flee these things. Flee the love of money with love for Christ and giving until it hurts. Second expectation of the man of God is this. But the man of God must not only flee. So number one, he must flee some things. But number two, he must not only flee. The Christian life is about more than fleeing. There's three words that are used here. In chapter 6, verse 11, after it says flee these things, the first word it says pursue. You go to verse 12, it says fight. You keep going to verse 12, it says take hold of. So the Christian life is not only about fleeing, it's about pursuing and fighting and taking hold of. The Christian life is chasing after something and battling along the way and then capturing that thing and taking hold of it. That's the picture of the Christian life and what Timothy's being called to here. Could you, could you describe your life, your Christian life with these words? He's pursuing something. He's fighting. She's taking hold of eternal life. We don't want to be known as Christians as just those that uh, just don't do a bunch of stuff, right? How do you describe the, this person's Christian life? Well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. No, it's not just that. But it's pursue, fight, and take hold of. Now, let's take each one of those phrases. Number one, pursue. Right in verse 11, it says pursue. Pursue what? And we're given six words that we're to pursue, and they're really given to us in, in couplets, kind of two at a time here. So what do we do to pursue? It says the first couplet is righteousness and godliness. Now these are very similar pursuits. Brothers and sisters, Timothy, pursue righteousness and godliness. Righteousness. Pursue what is right. Pursue what is right. Godliness. Pursue what is like God. In your own heart, pursue righteousness and godliness. In this world, pursue righteousness and godliness. Brothers and sisters, are you in hot pursuit of these things? Or are you coasting? Are you coasting? The second couplet, it says, faith and love. Pursue faith and love. Now, surely Timothy has faith in God. And surely Timothy has love for Christ. Why is he being told to pursue something he already has? Because listen, the Bible's clear. Faith is something that increases more and more. Love for Christ is something that increases more and more. Study that in the Bible. It's very clear. So pursue more faith in Christ. Pursue more love for Christ. Faith in Him. Reliance upon Him. Dependence upon Him. Pursue that. Love for Christ. Affections for Jesus. Affections for God. Pursue that, he says. Pursue that. Are you in hot pursuit of these things? Or are you on cruise control? Are you in hot pursuit of these things? Now, what you do with the Bible says a lot about whether or not you're in hot pursuit of these things. Because how do you increase your faith? How do you trust Him more? 
You need to know Him. And how do you know Him? From His Word. How do you increase your affections for Christ? Well, you need to know Him. The more you know Him, the more you love Him. How do you get to know Him? Through His His Word. Are you in hot pursuit of these things? What does your devotion to God's Word say about that? Now, the last couplet here is steadfastness and gentleness. If you see it there, steadfastness and gentleness. Now, steadfastness is how you deal with difficult circumstances. And gentleness is how you deal with difficult people. So you will face difficult circumstances and difficult people. Maybe you're facing that right now. Are you in hot pursuit of steadfastness and gentleness till the end? Are you giving up because it's hard? Are you in pursuit of these things? That's the first word, pursue. Then he says, fight in verse 12. Fight. So don't just run from stuff. And don't just chase stuff. But he says here, to fight. The Christian life is warfare. The Christian life is battle. It's fighting, as it says here. Now here's the thing. Paul knows the world that Timothy lives in. The Apostle Paul, writing this to Timothy, he knows the world that he lives in. In fact, Paul describes the world Timothy lives in like this. The present evil age. Or in another place, the twisted and crooked, perverse generation. Or in another place, he calls the world in which Timothy lives darkness. And so he reminds Timothy, Timothy, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to make war because of where you live. And we live in the same dark world. Are you in the fight, brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you in the fight? Can we see blood? You ever, when I used to play basketball when we were kids, if somebody hollered foul, you say, no blood, no foul. Say, where's the blood? Are you in the fight? Where's the bloodshed? Where's your scars? Who are your enemies? Do you have enemies? Are you in the battle? Are you in the war? Now, what are we fighting for? And it says here in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. What are we fighting for? Fighting for the faith. What do, um, it doesn't say we fight for just faith, as in your own personal faith to make it to the end, as true as that is. But there's a definite article there that, that we fight the good fight. It's a good fight of the faith. What is, what is the faith? This is a phrase that's used in 1 Timothy and other places in the Bible that refer to the church's body of sound gospel truth. This body of sound gospel doctrine. That's the faith. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 1, right? Where it says, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of demons. We see it in Jude 3. Where it says we're we're supposed to contend earnestly for the faith. What do you mean for the faith? That thing which was once and for all delivered to the saints. So something was given to all the saints, not each individual, but one time, in a moment of time, it was given once for all to the saints. And it's the faith. It's this body of sound gospel doctrine. We're to fight for that. We're to fight for sound doctrine. Fight for the truth. So men and women of God, take up your Bible, the sword of the Spirit, no sound doctrine, and fight anything that opposes it, anything that contradicts it. Are you in this battle? 
Timothy, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Now the next word, so pursue, fight, and the next word, or the next phrase is take hold of. You see it there in verse 12? Take hold of the eternal life. So take hold of. This is, uh, the word means to lay hold of something or to take possession of something, to capture it. That's the idea, to capture it. Take hold of what? Well, it says right here, eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. Well, what is that? What is eternal life? What is eternal life? Now, now you might think, well, that's simple. Eternal life's easy, right? It's just life that's eternal. Eternal life. And I want to get you, I want you to think a little deeper than that, okay? Eternal life in the scripture is not just the duration or the length of your life goes on forever, but it's a quality of life. It's a kind of life. What kind of life? It's the eternal kind. It's a quality of life, eternal life. We see this in 1 John 3.15 when it speaks about eternal life that abides in us. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? Not just the length of life, but this is a kind of life that can abide in you right now. When you think eternal life, you're not just thinking future, you're thinking something that abides in you right now. Ephesians 4.18 says it's similar. When we, were, when we were without Christ, it says we were alienated from the life of God. That's eternal life. The life of God in the souls of men. As a certain book has said it. The life of God in the soul of men. It's divine life flowing through human veins. Eternal life is the life of God. It's the quality of life. Now we see that if you look down to chapter 6 verse 19. A very similar phrase. Look at the second part of verse 19. So that they might take hold of. Do you hear that? Take hold of that which is what? Truly life. Eternal life is that real life, that, that truly life, that life of God. Now, Timothy already has this life, right? Doesn't Timothy already have this eternal life? John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, but you think Timothy believed in him? Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Timothy's already got this life. In fact, we see it right here in verse 12. It says, the eternal life, first it says, to which you were called. So Timothy's got it. He was called to this eternal life. And then it says, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That Timothy had already made a public profession, a good confession of this. I mean, something like at his baptism or something like Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. He, this man has eternal life. So why is he being told to take hold of something that he already has? Why is he being told to take hold of something that he already has? You know, if you got eternal life, that's it, right? Wrong. This says take hold of it. Lay hold of it. Now here's a beautiful, let me just give you a beautiful, I think a beautiful illustration of this. Joshua chapter 18, verse 3. God had already given Israel the land. He already gave it to them. And they had already crossed the Jordan. They were in the land that God had given to them. In Joshua 18, 3, God says this to them. He says, how long will you neglect to take possession of the land to which I've already given you? That's the Christian life. Do you, do you have eternal life? 
Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember when you were called to it? Do you remember when you made that public confession, that good confession like Timothy? Do you have eternal life? Listen, don't stop there. Lay hold of the life of God. Lay hold of it. John chapter 7, Jesus promises that those who believe in me, as the scripture said, out of their heart will flow rivers of life. Rivers of life. Living waters. Take hold of it. Now, third expectation of the man of God. Third expectation of the man of God is this. The man of God must protect the gospel truth. The man of God must protect the gospel truth. Now, there's three phrases. Verse 12, 14, and 20. Three different phrases that say the same thing. Okay? So let's look at them. We've already mentioned verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. The faith is that gospel truth. Fight for it. Protect it. Man of God must protect gospel truth. Well, there's another phrase just like that. Look at verse 14. This is a charge from Paul to Timothy. A charge to do what? Verse 14. To keep, that's to guard, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. The commandment there is the same as the faith. Timothy, guard the commandment. Guard the faith. Keep it unstained. Don't let anything, don't let anything stain it. Don't let anything defile the truth. Keep it free from reproach. It's this idea of somebody reaching and trying to grab it. When, when ungodly men try to grab this truth and twist it, stop them. Stop them. Guard the commandment, it says here, which is very similar also to verse 20, the third phrase. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. It's the faith, the commandment, that body of sound gospel truth. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Something has been entrusted to Paul, this truth of the gospel. Something's been entrusted to Timothy, this sound truth of the gospel. Something's been entrusted to us. And right here he says, guard, guard that deposit. So the Christian life is like, like a soldier. Imagine a soldier taking dispatches. He's got to guard them because he's taking them through enemy lines. That's your picture of the Christian life. Like a soldier taking dispatches through enemy territory. Now, how serious is this charge? Timothy, I charge you. I charge you. Guard the good deposit. Keep the commandment. A charge. How serious is this charge? How authoritative is this charge that Paul has given Timothy? Well, let me get you to think like this. Who's in the room when the soldier is given the directive adds to the seriousness of it, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, if you, imagine you're a common soldier and your higher-ups say, hey, uh, we... We got, a, we got a charge to give you. We got a directive to give you. And as a soldier, you, you're a common soldier. You come into the office of your higher up. And there you are. And just before he gives you the charge, just before he gives you the dispatch, he, inter, he introduces to, to command. Hey, this is commander-in-chief, by the way. This is the secretary of defense right here. And you, what are you thinking at that moment? Man, this must be serious. This charge, this dispatch I'm about to get, this must be very serious. I better listen carefully. These dispatches must be very important. Well, listen to me. Who does Paul bring into the room 
to give the charge to Timothy. Who does he bring into the room? Look at it in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So God says, listen, I'm about to charge you something. And who's he bringing to the room? God Almighty who gives life to all things, all life dependent on him. If God removes his spirit, all life goes to dust in a moment. He says, he's right here. Now I'm about to give you a charge. And that would be enough, right? Who else does he bring into the room? Verse 13. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What was that good confession? Well, go read what Pilate said to Jesus and what Jesus said to Pilate. Again and again, Pilate said, are you the king? Pilate said, are you the king? Jesus said, yep. So who does Paul bring into the room? The one that gives life to all things? To all living things and the king of glory. Are you the king? Yes. He brings the king of glory and he sets them there and he says, here we are in the room together. Now I'm about to charge you, Timothy. Guard the good deposit. Keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach. And I hope Timothy's heart's beating fast. And man, I need to listen to that charge. I need to protect this deposit. I need to hold on and guard these gospel truths. Now, how long is this charge supposed to be kept? Look at it in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, it says, Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how long does he keep the charge? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or till, until the second coming. Until the second coming of Christ. Keep this charge. Well, listen, Timothy's long dead and gone. But the second coming has not yet come. And so this charge is passed down to us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Guard the good deposit. Take up the, the word of God. Dig deep in the word of God. Spread the word of God. Come against false things and stand against the word of God. The charge is given to you in the presence of God. And in the presence of Christ Jesus the King. Guard the good deposit until he splits the sky. Now, fourth expectation of the man of God. The man of God knows doxology. Man of God knows doxology. Y'all know that word doxology? Theology is the study of God. It's about understanding and knowing God. Doxology is the goal of theology. It's praise. It's worship. It's the theology. I want to know God. I want to understand God. That leads me to doxology, praise, and worship to this God whom I now know. Doxology is praise. It's worship to God. And that's exactly what we see in verse 15 and 16. Can we read it again? Look at it. Verse 15. Which he will display at the proper time. And listen to this. Listen to this eruption in the doxology. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's worship. It's doxology. Paul the apostle knew nothing of deep theology that did not lead to fiery doxology. 
He knew nothing of that. It's all over. Go read his writings. And all, even, if even in chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Timothy, this is not the first time he's done this in this letter, that in the middle of him speaking about things and teaching things and giving charges, he breaks out into these almost random-seeming eruptions of praise to God. Oh, that we would live life like that. Speaking with one another, going about our business with random eruptions of praise and worship. Because he's worthy. So he knew nothing of deep theology without fiery doxology, doxology and neither should we. So let's do this. Let's come alongside Paul and Timothy in this letter here. And let's take time to see what in his worship, what does he say about God? And let's take time to worship God together through what he says about God here. So what does he say? And I'll break it up into three categories. First, he says... In verse 15, he says, number one, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Now that just said he's the only sovereign. Sovereign means he's the only ruler. He's the only one that's really in control of all things. Are there kings out there? Of course there are kings, but there's a king of all the kings. Are there lords out there? Of course there are lords. But there's a lord of all lords. That even the wicked ones are like puppets in his hands. He does as he pleases with all of them. He is the sovereign one, king of kings, lord of lords. Now before that though, it said blessed. He's the blessed and only sovereign. You know what the word blessed means? Happy. He is He's the happy God. You ever worship Him like that? God, you are so happy. What does it mean? That He's the happy and sovereign God. I want you to think about this. That He is sovereign one in control of all things. But He's not sitting around writhing His hands. He's not sweating. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. This blessed is the very antithesis of sorrow and anxiety and worry. He's ruling all things and he's absolutely happy and not stressed out. Psalm 2 gives us a good picture of that, right? You think about God like that? Psalm 2 says the nations are raging. The people set themselves against God and his Christ. And they say, let us cast his bonds off of us. You know what the next verse says? He sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. He's the blessed and only sovereign. Second category here, if you keep reading, it says, who alone has immortality. Think about that. Number two, who alone has immortality. So, so he alone is immune to death. He alone has life forever. Now I say that and that might, it sounds a little, does that sound a little funny to you? You just said he alone has life forever. But wait a minute. I'm in Christ. Don't I have life forever? You're in Christ. If you're in Christ here today, you got life forever, right? So, so what does this mean? That he, he alone has immortality. It's this idea that, listen, he has immortality in and of himself. It's the way it says it in John 5, 26. It says that Jesus has life in himself in and of himself in other words yes i'm a christian 
and I have eternal life, but you understand that I only have life because of the source. God has no source. He is the source. He has life in and of himself. And it's a beautiful thought that throughout all of eternity, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 says that we are given immortality. Okay? So, so throughout all of eternity, we will be immune to death and have life forever. But even then, our immortality is not like God's. That even in all of eternity, a thousand, thousands, millions of years into eternity, the reason you exist and worship God will still be because He holds you up. But not Him. Nobody holds Him up. Life in and of Himself. Third category it says about God here. Look at it. It says, Who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now that's an interesting one, right? If we went around the room and said, give me something to worship God about. You give me something, you give me something. You get, let's talk about things we can worship uh, God over. And, and I don't think hardly any of you would say, can't see Him. Nobody's seen Him, can't see Him. Inapproach, unapproachable. Unapproachable light. It's not the way we would typically think, but I want you to think about this. He dwells, our God dwells in unapproachable light, has not been seen, nor can anyone see Him. What's being said here? Our God lives in an atmosphere of blinding holiness. No one can fathom His greatness. That's what's being expressed here. Oh, think about it. All the revelation of God and who God has shown Himself to be has always been partial, Right? Moses, you can see my back, not my face, for you're good, brother. You're going to die. He'll show himself in a fire or, or lightning and thunder and smoke on Mount Sinai. He reveals himself, but it's always partial. Even the greatest revelation of God is robed in flesh. The God-man, Jesus Christ, so that we can stand, even stand to be in His presence and worship. And even then, we'll fall down like John and as, if, as if we're dead. And so in verse 16 at the very end it says, To Him, the one just described to you, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the man of God knows and experiences doxology. So, so here we are. We've got the man of God and we've got these four expectations of the man of God. Now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Can the man of God be rich? Is it okay? Can the man of God be rich? And verse 17 through 19 addresses uh, this question. And the answer is yes. He can be rich. Um, but there's some warnings that you need to hear about riches. Yes, but there are some warnings you need to hear. Now I want you to think about for a minute. The placement of verse 17 through 19. So he just addressed Timothy, and now he says, Timothy, I want you to, Timothy, I want you to charge the rich that are in the church. I want you to charge the rich folks in the church. Think about the placement of this. Doesn't it seem? You know, just where would I put it if I wrote it? Don't you think if I didn't write it? But where would you put it? Just the placement. Here we are in this letter. We've got this letter laid out, breathed out by God. And here at the very end, you think he's about to close it out. And he's like, hold on, I gotta say something to the rich folks. What does the placement of this tell you? What, is it, what does it communicate to you? It communicates, I hope this, the danger of riches. 
God puts it right here at the very end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, riches are dangerous. Remember the parable of the sower? One of those plants that sprung up, it was choked out. What choked it out? One of the things that choked it out, it says this phrase. This is from Jesus. The deceitfulness of riches. Man, it's dangerous. The deceitfulness of riches. It's so dangerous. So he says here, as for the rich in this present age, he addresses the rich in the church. Now, for bringing this in to Grace Community Church, who's being addressed here at Grace Community Church? Who's being addressed in this passage? Now, on the one hand, there's a sense in which we can say, everybody better perk up. You live in the richest culture that's ever existed. Maybe you fit in this category, whether you think you do or not. So there's a sense in which all of us should perk up. And there's another sense in which there are those that fit this rich category uh, better than others, you know, or more clearly than others. Listen up. Listen up. Listen to God's, listen to God's word here. What's the first warning? Verse 17. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. Warning number one, beware of pride. Why does money, why, does, why do riches make you have tendencies towards pride? Man, you feel so self-important. Makes you feel so self-important. Beware of pride. Second warning, keep reading. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Man, don't riches make you feel so secure? You better lodge this phrase in your head. The uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. They are not securing. They are uncertain. And you'll have a tendency to set your hope on something that is so unsure. Rather than set your hope on God. So to the rich I say, beware of pride. Beware of feeling secure and safe and okay because you got riches. You better trust God. Lean into God. He's not uncertain. He's absolutely certain. Now, there's two warnings there, but this is not a call. You see this clearly in the passage. This is not a call to, uh, for rich people to uh, walk in asceticism. Okay? It's, you know, this idea of you know, you're more spiritual if you whip your own back and, and you don't have anything at all. Right? You're real spiritual if you just you know, hurt yourself and don't have anything. You know, so many of us here, we despise the prosperity gospel, right? Spirituality is marked by how much you have, how much prosperity you have. But listen, you also ought to despise the poverty gospel. Spirituality is marked by how much you don't have. Either way, spirituality is being gauged by what you have or don't have rather than Jesus, rather than Christ. And so, and so what he says here is not asceticism. Look at verse 17 still. But on God, and then look at it. God, what does God do? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, the people on planet earth that should be able to enjoy the material blessings of God more than anyone else are Christians because we know where they come from. God who gives life and we know they're uncertain so we don't trust them. So we can enjoy more than anybody else. This is not a call to asceticism. So then how can the rich be faithful? Verse 18. How can the rich be faithful? Brothers and sisters, listen up. They are to do good. To be rich 
Not just in wealth, but rich in what? Rich in good works. To be generous. Ready to share. How can a rich man be faithful with his riches? Be ready to give. Give till it hurts. Be ready to share. Be filled with a life just full of good works. How are you using your riches? How do you use your wealth? Now what's given to us here is the exact opposite of the rich fool. You know the rich fool story? Jesus told, told us about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. The rich fool, what did he do? This man, his crops grew up, man, and he's, he's got all this wealth coming in. Things are going really, really well for him. He says, you know what I'll do? I've got no room to store up all my stuff in these areas, in my, in my storehouses. So here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my storehouses and I'll build bigger storehouses. And there I'll store all my crops and I'll store all my goods. And I'll say to myself, soul, you got many things laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat. Drink. Be merry. And you keep reading that story. You know what God says to him? God says to him, you fool. This day, your life is going to be required of you. And then whose will those things be? Whose will those things be, you fool? And so God's calling the rich here to do just the opposite of that. Not store up bigger for yourself, but give generously. Not think about me and my security, but willing to share. Not leisure, but a life filled with good works. And if you do... Look at the beautiful stuff that happens. Verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. There it is. You want to store up something? Store it up in the future. Store it up in heaven. How do you do that? Give it away here. Store it up there. And what else does it say? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the charge to the rich in the church. Now, final word. Verse 20 and 21. It's the final word. Final, final sentence, final few sentences here in the church order letter that we've been studying together. Let's read the final word. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing as some have swerved from the faith, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Just the final word. Now in closing, Paul singles out Timothy. You see that in verse 20? Oh, Timothy. But he also addresses the church. You see that in the last four words. Grace be with you. That you is plural. Y'all. Grace be with you. Church. He's so he's addressing singularly Timothy, but then also he's brought it out to the church. So this is not a letter. First Timothy is not a letter where Timothy folded up and put it in his pocket for his eyes only. It's a letter for the church at Ephesus. It's a letter for Grace Community Church. Grace Community Church. We are ending our study in First Timothy. What will you do with the church order letter? What will you do with this letter that we've been studying here I want to read this passage to you quickly please don't flip there well you can if you want but I don't have you gotta be quick Ezekiel 33 listen to this verse 30 it says as for you son of man your people 
He's talking to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, your people, they talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, and they say to one another, each to his brother, Come, hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Now that sounds good, right? The people are getting together saying, Hey, y'all, come on, let's go listen to what Ezekiel says from God. Sounds like good, a good thing. Then it says, And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, listen to this, their heart is set on gain. Their heart is set on gain. So they listen to the words, but they will not do it. In fact, it goes on to say, And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs in a beautiful voice, and plays well on the instrument. You just like to them like a beautiful, you know, a good, beautiful sermon. And it says, for they will hear what you say, but they will not do it. But they will not do it. How will you respond to the church order letter that we've been studying together? How will you act on it? Now, to be faithful, this last verse here, verse 20. You know, to be faithful to do that, to guard the deposit... You know, to be faithful to do everything that we've been seeing in this letter, to be faithful to that, you're going to need to avoid some things. That's what it says here, right? It says avoid, and it mentions stuff that we've already talked about that we've seen in this letter. Irreverent Bible and contradiction was falsely called knowledge. You're going to need to avoid some stuff to be faithful. You're going to need to be laser beam focused on Christ, His Word, His mission. Which means you're going to need to avoid some things to respond rightly to this letter. Now, let me give you a good, uh, you know, a good illustration of that. This is in Nehemiah chapter 6. <clears throat> I love this little illustration of what it looks like to avoid some things and continue doing what God's told you to do. Nehemiah chapter 6 says this. Now, when Sunballad and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, the, the, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall. Just think of Nehemiah there leading out the building of the wall. When they heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sunbalat and Geshem sent to me saying, so here's the enemies of Nehemiah who's building the wall. Here's the enemies. What do the enemies say? They say, come, let us meet together at Hakufarim in the plain of Ono. Let Come, let us meet together. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, and I love his message back to them. Listen, this is Nehemiah talking to his enemies as he's building on the wall. Nehemiah sends a message back that says this, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. <laughs> four times. I, I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down to you? I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down to you? I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down to you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in one hand, with the hammer of sound doctrine in the other hand, let's build. Let's respond to the church order letter and build the church and advance His kingdom, which means we're going to need to avoid some things and not step down from the work. Now, if I say that and it overwhelms you, 
If I, can, you know, I'm pulling in all of 1 Timothy and I'm saying, brothers and sisters, respond, respond to these words. If that overwhelms you, let me draw your attention, lastly, to the last four words. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Think about that. The same grace that justifies you, sanctifies you. The same grace, the, the free, unmerited gift of God that justifies you before God also sanctifies you and pushes you out to the mission of God. Gr Brothers and sisters, grace be with you. You feel overwhelmed with this stuff? Listen, you've got access to grace from God. I love it that he ends on this note. So let's, let's do the same. Our study in 1 Timothy, let's end on this note. Grace Community Church, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Of course you're not strong enough. Of course you can respond lightly to these things in and of yourself, but you're not in and of yourself. You've got access to the grace of the living God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also, Jesus, through whom also, we have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in the grace and we've got access into more. We can call down Hebrews 4, grace to help in time of need. You're not alone. And if you feel overwhelmed, it should only be for a moment. And then you remember grace from God. Grace from God. Grace from God. So I'd encourage you. We're closing out 1 Timothy together. I would encourage you over the next, you know, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, maybe a couple of times, you decide the timing of it. But I would encourage you to take back open 1 Timothy and get on your knees somewhere in a position of obedience and prayer to God with an open Bible on your knees and just read back through 1 Timothy. And the whole way through, just stop. Just sentence after sentence after sentence. Just stop. And just pray. Say, God, God, thank you for these words. God, give me grace. Give me grace, Lord, to do this. Give me grace to walk these things out. Give our church grace to live out what we've been studying. I challenge you to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words, Lord. Thank you so much for grace. God, I pray all around this room that you would raise up God men and women of God that have done with lesser things <laughs> but men and women of God that would give their whole heart soul mind and strength to serve you you are our king of kings oh Lord I pray you'd help us help us to respond to your word God please protect us from ever being like these people that read your word and hear sermons as just beautiful words of a musician. But don't respond. Lord, you said their heart was set on gain. And that's why they were like that. Their heart was set on gain. God, please don't let our heart be set on gain. God, I pray you would deliver us from the love of money. Even God, expose it. And as if it's there and we're numb to it, expose it. Help us to see this sin and flee it. Free us up, Lord, to serve you with all our heart and soul. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.